0: This text is found in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 22. I invite you to follow along with me as I read it in your Bibles or in the Bible in the pew in front of you. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 22. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I command you this day for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love upon your fathers and chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as at this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God. Who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice to the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cleave to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrible things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made for you, made you as the stars of heaven for multitude.
1: We have been studying for five weeks now the pleasures of God. In the first message, we saw that God, from all eternity, has been supremely happy in the fellowship of the Holy Trinity. Between the Father and the Son, there flows an energy of love and joy that is so full so complete, carries so much of God's personal essence, that that joy and that love stands forth itself as a person in His own right, the Holy Spirit. We said that God the Father, as it were, casts His eye out over the panorama of His own perfections, reflected back to Him in the face of His Son in such a way that He is filled to overflowing with joy and love and delight so that God is happy in the fellowship of the Trinity from all eternity. In fact, if you could measure the energy of all the galaxies, of all the universe put out by those massive pulsing stars and you could get a reading on this energy that reading would be a faint little echo or reverberation of the energy of the joy and the love that swells and sweeps and streams and surges between God the Father and God the Son in the Holy Trinity. There is just no way to conceive how infinitely happy God is in the fellowship of the Trinity and has been from all eternity. Therefore, we saw in our second message that God is self-sufficient. He doesn't have any needs, and therefore He can't be bribed. He doesn't have any flaws, and therefore He can't be blackmailed. He doesn't have any weaknesses and therefore He can't be coerced. You can't get His arm behind His back and make Him do a thing He doesn't want to do. He is free. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. And therefore, we saw in the third week that... When he created this spectacular universe, and it is spectacular from spiders to galaxies, he was not creating anything to meet his need. He was not creating something to fill in a a gap or provide for a deficiency. Rather... Creation is the overflow of fullness. Creation is what a God does when He is bursting with joy and happiness and fullness. Creation is the spin-off of the superabundant bounty of God's delight in His own glory. So when you see radiance in the world, when you see wonder in the world, what you see is the spin-off, as it were, of the fullness of God's delight in His own glory. Which led us last week to consider God's purpose in this creation. And we said, the passion of God's heart in this world is to make a name for Himself. Which we decided meant to make a reputation for His glory to make His fame and His renown and His honor exalted among every people and tribe and tongue and nation. Now, what I didn't stress last week, and I want to say as a means of transition to this week, is this. For God to make it His aim, to exalt His name and magnify His glory and get a name for Himself, a reputation, a fame, and a renown is the most loving thing He could ever do for you. Because I find that when I stress this biblical truth, people strangely say, where's love? And I'm always wondering when they ask that, wonder what their concept of love is, that they don't see love here. The reason it is the most loving thing God could do is because the best thing He could ever give you is to see, taste, admire, praise, enjoy, and have a share in the glory of His name. Or don't you agree that's the best thing He could give you? When God makes it His aim to exalt the glory of His name among every people and tribe and tongue and nation... He is acting in overflowing love because the only thing that will satisfy the hearts of those people in every people and tribe and tongue and nation is God's glory, exalted. You see that? The reason people can't see that is because they have a man-centered view of love. Love must be a reaction of God to your worth. Or it's not love. That's why people have a hard time seeing the love of God in God-centered biblical truth. That's not biblical love. Biblical love is the overflow of joy that God has in Himself spilling out on unworthy people to draw them into the greatest experience in the world, namely knowing Tasting, enjoying, praising, being swept up into the glory of God. Man-centered people can't understand this. God-centered people revel in it. Today, we take it a step further, and what we discover is that one of the ways that God has chosen... To make a name for himself in the world is by electing a people for himself. We read last week, Jeremiah 13:11, where he says, I will make them cling to me and they will be for me a people, a name, a praise and a glory. He has created a people for himself and elected a people for himself that they might be for him a name a praise and a people and a glory. So what we want to do today is look at God's pleasure in election. We're going to begin with the Old Testament and look at a few passages in Deuteronomy and then we're going to shift over to the New Testament to see whether or not what we've seen in the Old Testament is carried through or changed somehow in the shift as the New Testament emerges. Let's go to Deuteronomy 10, verses 14 and 15. These two verses, out of what Kenny read, are the focus, first of all. Deuteronomy 10:14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven, and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it, Yet, the Lord set his heart in love upon your fathers. and Literally, that's the Lord delighted in your fathers to love them. That's where I get the idea of pleasure. He delighted in loving them. And chose their descendants after them, you, above all the peoples, as at this day. Now, notice two things about this text. First, why does Moses describe the election of Israel against the backdrop of God's ownership of all things? You see that? Verse 14 says, To God belongs everything in heaven and on earth. He owns everything, everybody and everything. Then verse 15 says, Yet he chose you for his people. Now, why did Moses, in writing this, put the choosing of God's people against the backdrop of God's ownership of everything. Isn't the reason to dispel the notion that God was in any way cornered or hedged in so that He had to choose this people? Isn't the point to dispel the current idea that each nation had its own God, Israel had its God, the Canaanites had their God, Egypt had its God. The Babylonians had their God. And that's wrong, this text says. God owns all those other gods. And he owns the Egyptians. He owns the Canaanites. He owns the Babylonians, which means he's free. He can make himself the God of any people he chooses. He could choose the Babylonians. He could have chosen Egyptians to accomplish his saving purposes in the world. He didn't have to choose Jews. He's free. He owns the world. If you own all the buildings in downtown Minneapolis, you can put your office in anyone you want. If you own every people in the world, you can choose any people for your special purposes. Isn't the point of putting the election of Israel against the backdrop of universal ownership to say he chose you freely? He didn't have to choose you. He's not locked into being your God. He could have made himself the god of the Canaanites. He could have chosen American Indians to get his purposes started. He was free. It was nothing in the Jews. It was no ethnicity. It was no faith. It was no virtue. Abraham was a moon worshiper in Ur of the Chaldees when God came to him. And chose him from all the peoples in the world. So that's the first thing to observe in these two verses. The contrast between the universal ownership of God over all peoples and His choice of this one people freely. Now, here's the second thing to notice. In His freedom, God set His love upon the fathers. I want to focus on that word love. God set His love, or He delighted to love, the fathers. So when He chose... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I take that to be the fathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and and then the patriarchs. When he chose them, he was freely setting his love upon them and was not constrained by their Jewishness to do that. It was free. He consulted his own wisdom. He didn't consult their distinctives and virtues when he set his favor and love upon Abraham Isaac and Jacob. Now, there is a passage in the New Testament that describes how God did this to explicitly make His freedom obvious. Well, it's obvious with Abraham because Abraham is out there doing his own thing, not knowing Yahweh, God. And God comes to him and chooses him of all the men in the world that He could have chosen freely and draws him to Himself and makes him then the father of all the faithful. But what about Abraham's seed? Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And God freely sets His favor upon Isaac, not Ishmael, to continue His saving purposes. Then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And while they're still in their mother's womb... God says the elder will serve the younger before they had done anything good or evil. He sets his favor upon Jacob, not Esau, so that through Jacob he would continue his saving purposes. Now, why is he doing it this way? This is exactly spelled out for you in Romans 9, 10 to 13. Why is God doing it this way? Paul says he's doing it this way to make crystal clear to the whole world that he is free in all of His saving choices, and in all of His election. So when He sets His love upon the fathers, as it says here in uh, Deuteronomy 10, 15, He did it freely. Now, let's look at another text in Deuteronomy where this freedom of God is made even clearer. It's chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. And I'll read these three verses, uh, 6, uh, 7, and I think we'll read 8 as well. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be His people For his own possession, out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you, literally again, delighted in you, and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath which he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, this text teaches the freedom of God even more clearly than the other one. Look at the question that is raised for us in verse 7. In verse 7, this question is raised. Why did God set his love upon you? And verse 7 tells us why he didn't. Well, he didn't do it because they were a great people. Numerous people. They were small. They were an unlikely candidate. We're going to see that God is always turning the tables on human expectations so as to frustrate man-centered boasting. He chooses the weak, the despised, the lowly. The unsuspecting. Why did he, though? That's why he didn't. I mean, that's not the reason he did. What is the reason he did? Well, two answers are given in verse 8. The first one is he set his love upon them. It says, Because the Lord loves you. Now, oh, that's amazing. Remember what the question is from verse 7? Why did God set his love upon them? And the answer, the first answer is because he loves them. He loved them because he loved them. That's what I mean by the freedom of God. If somebody asks you the bottom reason why God loved you, The answer is, because He loved me. If you seek in yourself a reason for why God set His electing love upon you, you oppose the work of God and the purposes of God. The first answer in this text for why He set His love upon the fathers and upon Israel is because He loved them. He's free. There is a second answer, however. It says in verse 8, second part, because He was keeping the oath which He swore to their fathers. Now, does that mean that God's choice to love and save was constrained and not free? I think the people in view here at this point are the people at the Red Sea. And he's talking about the exercise of God's love in redeeming them out of Egypt and of making them a people for his own corporately. Many of them were unbelievers. so He's talking about a corporate election here for them to be his special people that he would work with through the Old Testament. Is he constrained to save them at the Red Sea? No, he's not. The oath of blessing that's referred to here in verse 8, when it says he's keeping his oath, was made to Abraham freely. God came to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis and just made him a promise. Told him what he was going to do with him. And then God confirmed that oath to Isaac, not Ishmael. Because he was acting in freedom. And then he confirmed that oath to Jacob, not Esau, because he was acting in freedom. And when he gets to the Red Sea, he is still free. He did not have to save that people at the Red Sea in order to keep his oath to Abraham. Why not? Because John the Baptist said he can raise up from stones children to Abraham. Do you remember what was happening in John the Baptist's day? They were saying, don't tell us there's wrath coming. We have Abraham as our father. He said, don't begin to say you have Abraham as your father. There's no security in having Abraham as your father. There's no security in being white or black or a church member. There's no security in being a Jew. God can raise up people to fulfill His promises to Abraham out of stones. Don't boast in your ethnicity, bank on free mercy, which God exercises for His namesake. God was free at the Red Sea. God is always free to fulfill His purposes. His fulfilling His oath to the fathers was an extension of the same freedom with which He made the oath in the first place. So I conclude from this little Glimpse at the Old Testament is that God chose this, this corporate people, Israel, to use them throughout the Old Testament for His purposes to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. And He chose them freely. And He chose them for His glory, to make a name for Himself. Isaiah 43:7, I have created Israel for my glory. Isaiah 43, 21, I have formed them that they might declare my praise. Now let's go to the New Testament. What happens in this whole area of election when there is a shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Well, the first thing to remember is this. God ceases to deal with a corporate group called Israel, at least for a time, He does. It says in Matthew 21:43, He will take the kingdom away from them, Israel, and give it to a nation producing the fruits of it, namely, the church. A hardness has come upon Israel until the full number of the Gentiles is gathered in. Today is a day when a door of faith has been opened to the nations, God no longer is electing an ethnic people like He elected Israel at the Red Sea and made them a corporate political people for Himself. What is He doing? Is He electing anything today? Indeed, He is. God's election today is His drawing into the church people who will be saved. He sets his favor today upon individuals and brings them to himself in faith and destines them for glory. Now, the first text that I want to take you to is Luke chapter 10, verse 21. The reason I'm going to take you to Luke 10, 21 is because when I was preparing these messages and thinking about their texts and topics back in August, and I was doing the concordance work, looking up places where God delights and rejoices and takes pleasure in things. I ask myself, where does Jesus ever rejoice? Do the Gospels ever teach that Jesus got excited about anything? Twice in four Gospels He rejoices. One is in John 11, where he says, I am glad that I was not there when Lazarus died. (laughs) They said, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And he says, I'm glad I wasn't there. And then he says, for the sake of your faith. He knew what he was going to do. And that a greater benefit than sparing Lazarus of death was to build faith into his disciples. And the other place is right here. Let's read what he rejoices in here. Now, let me give you the background first. The 70 disciples have been sent out on an evangelistic mission. They have preached all over the place. And they have come back so excited because demons have been cast out, people have believed, and it's thrilling. And they report to Jesus who had taught them, equipped them, and sent them out. And here's the response that Luke gives. Verse 21, Luke 10. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank Thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that Thou hast hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to babes. Yes! I affirm it. Yes, Father, for such was Thy gracious will. Or more literally, RSV is a lousy translation here. For such... It was well-pleasing to thee. Or NIV may even be the best, for it was your good pleasure so to do. Now, this is an amazing verse. For many reasons. You know why it's amazing? I don't know of another verse in all the Bible. There may be one. But I don't know of another verse in all the Bible where the whole Trinity gets together to, to rejoice. You see this? Jesus is rejoicing. It says Jesus rejoiced. But in what power is he rejoicing? In the Holy Spirit. So I take that to mean that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is filling Jesus up with joy. And then at the end of the verse, the Father has good pleasure or is pleased in what he is doing. Now, what are these three divine persons so happy about? They're so happy because God the Father has hidden something from wise people and revealed it to babes. God has exerted free, sovereign choice in whom He will reveal what to? What is it that is being hidden and being revealed? Verse 22 gives the answer very plainly. No one knows the Son except the Father. So nobody is going to know who Jesus is unless the Father opens their eyes and reveals it to them. And verse 21 says... He is not doing this for the wise. He is doing it for babes. So when the 70 disciples return from their evangelistic mission, and note, they are on an evangelistic mission. People who rejoice like Jesus rejoices in God's sovereign election of whom He pleases Evangelize. They come back from this evangelistic mission and Jesus soars with gladness and says yes to God's election. To hide it from some and reveal it to others. God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are so bent on glorifying the grace of God That when God the Father uses His wisdom and His power to display His grace on whom He pleases in a way that will confound man-centered expectation, they rejoice. You do see that, don't you? That... God uses His freedom to confound man-centered expectations. Surely it's the wise who will grasp the gospel, right? Surely it's the wise, the intelligent, the educated, the highbrow, the well-born who will recognize their God when He comes. Wrong. Wrong. Just the helpless. Just the helpless. God turns the tables on human expectation. Why does he do that? You know why he does it. But let's let Paul tell us why he does it. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 to 31 as we draw it to a close this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 to 31. This is an amazing parallel to Luke 10:21. I hope you see the parallels as, as we read it together. Here's the question I want you to ask as we read 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31. Ask, what is election designed to oppose? And what is election designed to promote? Alright? Ask that as we read. Consider your call, brethren. Not many of you were wise. There's the first... You see that? There's, there's, there's Luke 10.21. Exactly the same point. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of, of you were no of noble birth. But God chose... Here comes election. God chose... What is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. This is what I think Jesus meant by babes. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, can you answer that question? There are two purposes for election. Something is being opposed... Something is being promoted. The first purpose of election is given in verse 29, very plainly that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The aim of God in election is the elimination of pride. Boasting in who you are by status, by education, by the exertion of your will, by your faith. Election is free so that all human boasting in men and self ceases forever. That's the first purpose of election. The second purpose of election is stated positively in verse 31. Since By God's power you are in Christ Jesus. Since Jesus is your life, your wisdom, your righteousness, your sanctification, your redemption. He's everything to you. And by God you are in Him. Therefore, don't ever boast in self. Don't ever boast in men. Boast in the Lord alone. That's the second purpose of election. So God has two purposes for election. To humble man and exalt Christ. To take all boasting off of men and put all boasting onto the Lord. To um, make men feel their dependence on God totally and to magnify the glory of His sovereign and free grace. And so I just want to conclude by taking us back to where I was at the beginning when I made a transition to today's message. Those of you who know that you are sinners, and I hope that's all of you, and who know that you are ungodly and weak and helpless to save yourselves, and who have seen in Christ an all-sufficient Savior in His death and resurrection, and by God's grace have been drawn to this Christ, so that you cast your heart and your life upon Him and embrace Him and love Him and trust Him and bank on Him and hope in Him and follow Him out of here today, those of you who have by grace found yourself recognizing your sin, seeing the sufficiency of Christ, casting yourself on Him, You will count the sovereign, electing grace of God as the most precious act of love that has ever been performed in the universe. And you will say from your heart with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.33, who will bring any charge against God's elect? In other words, you will make this doctrine a pillar of your hope against all the accusations of the evil one. It is such a rock. It is such a security. It is such a confidence. I just groan for the number of people who reject it as though it were not precious. As though it were not biblical. It is a gift from God to establish you when the waves break over your life and you wonder whether or not He would forsake you. Can you say this morning, God will not allow any charge against me neither in this age or in the age to come to stand because I am chosen. I am elect of God. I hope you can. This morning, there's not a person in this room who cannot confirm your calling and your eternal election if you will cast yourself on Christ, embrace Him, trust in Him, accept His forgiveness, and follow Him in the obedience of faith. Anybody in this room who right now is saying, I don't know if I'm elect. How do you know if you're elect? The answer is from 2 Peter 1.10. Make your calling and election sure. How? Trust Christ. Those who trust Christ, who love Christ, who embrace Christ, who follow Christ, who hope in Christ are elect. That is the sign and the seal that you are part of His number so that all the promises made to the elect in Romans 8 are yours. And when you get to the end of that chapter, you will be able to say with Paul the way Paul means it, nothing will separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ because... He won't let any charge against His elect stand. So let's praise the electing love of God together by going back to our bulletin and singing those two stanzas together. The one that starts, "'Tis not that I did choose thee. Shall we stand together as we sing?"